What does sushi and German World War II reenactment have in common? Let's talk safety. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? I am doing great, apart from some uh, unexpected overtime at work. But uh, yeah, <laughs> here we are. What about yep, you? It's another uh, another middle-of-the-night podcast for you. <laughs> Always is. Uh, I'm excited about our topic for today. We are going to be talking about safety in reenacting which is um, probably going to be I mean we've got a lot to talk about and I think it's going to be a lot of interest to people who do reenacting because I'm sure they've experienced safety concerns or thoughts in their time Um, and for people who are thinking about doing reenacting you know we're going to outline some of what the dangers are and what people do to mitigate that stuff. That's exactly what we're going to talk about because safety is important. We don't want to have injuries or worse. Yeah, I used to have a really dim attitude towards safety. In fact, for a long time, uh, well, we have like in America this motto, safety first, safety comes before all things. But uh, I had like a safety last attitude for a long time. And uh, I'm really lucky that I didn't get more hurt or that I didn't hurt uh, somebody else being reckless. And, you know, I certainly have learned from my mistakes and... Uh, you know, I won't talk. I mean, I'm I'm not dismissive of safety anymore. Certainly, it's definitely um, in my years of reenacting, I have learned reenacting is an inherently dangerous thing. Um, there was a uh, thinking back to the old Fort Indian Town Gap events. There was a waiver that I used to have to sign, and I went to so many of those events. I I like memorized part of this waiver. Um, it's a, like a liability waiver for insurance purposes, but it was like. I, I, you had to state, I acknowledge that as a participant in this event, I will be traversing dangerous and unsafe terrain. I may be in or around uh, unsafe antique vehicles. And, you know, thinking about that stuff, it's like, yeah, almost any event that you do, there's a possibility of getting hurt because you are out there you know, depending on what type of event you're doing, you're out there in the woods or maybe you're in an abandoned building. Um, you know, you're going up and down hills. There might be steep terrain. There might be rocky terrain. There might be dangerous rundown uh, structures. And the, the uh, obviously the vehicles are not like subject to the same safety controls as a 21st century car is. Also, um, you're handling firearms and you're using weapons as toys. I mean, it's like a totally inherently dangerous thing. So, um, so I think it's important for reenactors to acknowledge that and then to try to figure out ways to like make it as safe as possible. Exactly. And another big factor is also the weather because um, we do reenact in very old and outdated kit. So... Uh, very warm and very cold weather can be a danger as well. 
Sure. We're not, you know, we're not living outside every day like a lot of the soldiers that we portray might have been. So, um, you know, we don't get acclimated to the temperatures the way they might have been. And certainly, uh, I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of heat injuries over time. People get heat exhaustion um, because it you're wearing, you know, you're wearing like a full suit of clothes. It's really hot. You're engaged in physical activity. And certainly, like you say, and especially where you live, um, the extreme colds can be a real, it can be a real threat to a person's safety for sure. Yeah, and we've had safety concerns at events regarding uh, heat as well. And not just that, but all, all kinds of weather can be a, um, a problem, right? Like if you have rain and you're not prepared for it and people are getting soaked to the skin and then maybe you're supposed to go to sleep and the temperature is dropping to, you know, cold temperatures that can be extremely unsafe for people or thunderstorms, or even, um, we had an event one time where some guys were like really freaking out because it was in the woods and there were really, really high winds, you know, and the treetops are, are blowing around and it's just like, you can hear trees and branches coming down and it's like, it's not, maybe it isn't safe to be out here. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these concerns are going to be generic to like hiking or all kinds of outdoor stuff. Um, and yeah, people get, people die going on routine day hikes and, and trips in the wilderness all the time because they get lost or they get injured and they don't have a way to get out or they fall down, you know, uh, hazardous terrain or whatever it is. And uh, reenactment has all those risks plus the risks associated with um, running around and like pretending to shoot guns at each other. Yeah. So I guess, you know, what, what's your take, Lassa? What is your unit? What, when you're looking at an event that your unit is going to be doing, what are you thinking about in terms of making sure that everyone has a safe time and uh, leaves the event in one piece? My country don't have the tradition of like, uh, safety risks, assessments and all of that. And as you said, waivers that needs to be signed and stuff. But we, um, prior to any event, uh, the guys leading the unit, which is me and a few others, sit down and just talk about uh, the safety of the event. And terrain and hydration is the is our most common enemy. And we deal with that by either uh, going to a um, another part of the area we reenact at, or just tell everybody to be extra careful and that this terrain is rough. And when it comes to water, we make sure to always have extra water nearby. Um, doesn't have to be like right next up to us, but we we'll, we always bring a jerry can of uh, 20 liters of water and then we'd have a plastic tub or something stashed um, somewhere nearby which everybody knows of. So if they run out of water, they can go there and get it. Uh, another important aspect for us is that uh, we also always decide a place to gather up if an accident happen, uh, which is just a place where you evacuate to and everybody just gather up, uh, whatever happens, basically. And that is usually where the extra water is placed as well. Uh, we also have a safe word that is to be yelled out if something, um, if an accident happens, so everybody yells that, and we know that this is a real case accident. 
because that's the problem with reenacting. We're acting as well, and oh, we get we're getting shot. People are laying down and screaming, so we need to know when it's when is an actual uh, actual accident. Sure. And then, what do you guys last... use for your safe word? <laughs> Our safe word have been used a few times, and it is sushi. That's cool. That's a good uh, one. It is. It's easy sushi. to remember, and when you hear it, there is no doubt that, like you know, you're not hearing something from World War II. Exactly, and it is easy to yell as well. Like, cool. there's no chance any. World War II era military soldiers in combat yell sushi to each other. So, so that's our safe word. Um, and the last point we do is um, that um, we have key persons on either side that has to carry a cell phone with them at all times. So if something really bad happens, we can call for help immediately. That's a good idea. You and Ben and some other guys did a a hike in the north of the Arctic Circle that wasn't really a reenactment, but it was kind of like a reenactment. And uh, someone had to carry a firearm for safety, right? Yeah, uh, we were in Svalbard, which is basically the northernmost inhabited place on the planet. And um, we went there for a 1930s uh, hike. There are polar bears there, and you are required by law to carry firearms to deal with said polar bears uh, anywhere outside of any inhabited place. And Svalbard, which is a which is an island that is the size of the low countries, that is Belgium, Luxembourg, and Netherlands, and then a little bit more, only has uh, 2,000 uh, people living there. Yeah, that's pretty desolate. Another thing you're also required to carry on you is a GPS uh, beacon, which you can activate in case of emergency, and then the, then the help will come by helicopter uh, very quick. That's really cool. I've thought often about getting a uh, personal locator beacon like that for myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's a good idea, I guess. Um, but Better expensive. We we rented one for uh, for the hike, uh, locally in Svalbard. But that was yeah. Deep. They are they are expensive, but uh, boy, I mean, they there are a lot of people out there that aren't out there anymore. You know that that died where that who would still be alive today if they had had these personal locator beacons. Absolutely. Uh, now we always reenact with other people, so. Uh, it is enough to have a cell phone, uh, in our opinion, nearby to call sure. for help. Uh, yeah. The last thing I just remember that we always also have with us is a first aid kit. And that is a modern first aid kit filled up with modern, uh, up-to-date um, medical stuff, basically. It's basically just a first aid kit that is bought at like your local hardware store or something like that, like a Home Depot. And to defarb it, we basically put it in an ammunition tin, like the Patronin custom for the uh, MG ammo, because we always have one of those with us. And so one of those are for first aid. I think that's a brilliant idea. I should copy that idea. We yeah. have... Um... 
modern bandages in our bandage uh, pockets of our jackets that are wrapped in um, like old-timey linen fabric that's been stamped uh, so that it, it looks like a period German bandage, but it's a new bandage with real bandage supplies in it. But of course, uh, there's so much more to first aid than just having uh, bandage material for sure. Yeah, no, they, it, it's a good start, but uh, some of us do that too. But we we just um, trust like a full uh, first aid kit more and we just put it in a ammunition tin. And this is, it's a compromise because... Uh, a first aid kit isn't supposed to go in an MG's ammunition tin, but then again, uh, safety shouldn't be compromised on. No, I mean, uh, if you guys had an accident out there, which certainly is, there's always a chance that something like that happens. I mean, that could save somebody's life. Exactly. And it's just a hobby at, at the end of the day. And I, as a unit commander, would rather know that the guys are safe than like, oh, this MG tin weighs two kilos too little. So, yeah. Uh, sure. We don't mark the MG tin, though. Um, it is distinct in that it has a separate collar and stuff like that, but it, it it doesn't have like a huge red cross on it, but everybody in the unit knows that that is the one. They did have those uh, MG tins where sometimes were used for um, bandaging stuff for medical supplies. I've seen original examples but of course those wouldn't have been like a standard part of any squad formation yeah, exactly like those would have been used by medical personnel and as long as everybody knows that that tin has a first aid kit in it it doesn't really need any further uh symbols on it because it's just us who are out there anyways sure and it's visually i think better to do it the way that you've done it instead you know rather than okay, we're pretending that this has ammunition in it or, or lubricant or whatever it is, um, but it has first aid supplies in it. I think it's, it's better than having a medical marked box, you know, that's visibly a medical box that's being carried by somebody who's in a role where they really wouldn't have had something like that in the reality of World War II. Exactly. Uh, a project we also are working on, which we have been working on forever, is to have a... Uh, the first aid kit for vehicles in our truck uh, filled up with medical supplies that is marked as well uh, cool. because we often use the truck and then that would have one first aid kit with us in the field and wherever the truck is there's one as well which would just double up and be better absolutely yeah having a truck is a real kind of game changer on this stuff because you can have you can have all kinds of supplies on the truck. I mean, there could be a wooden box underneath one of the benches in the bed in the back, you know, that contains all kinds of uh, important supplies like that. Yeah. When the truck is involved, we do have um, more stuff with us usually, but we're also trying to not have too much. You know, you got to strike a balance between what what you should have, what they would have had, and then what's what's important and necessary to carry from like a modern hobby perspective. Some people will probably, probably frown upon having a cell phone uh, on us, but um, I mean, um, this isn't something we've done, but we talked about buying one of those cheap, small uh, Nokia phones that has like a battery, li battery life of like several days. It's a good and idea. Just have that turned off, basically, and you don't need a SIM card to call emergency services anyway. So, you, so it's just the twenty bucks to buy it that is the cost, and you can just live in your um, 
in like the squad leader's pocket or something. It's a great idea. And if something happens, then pull it out and dial in the uh, the uh, number for the emergency services. When we're getting ready for an event, we're always, you know, the first thing that we're looking at, or as the event gets closer, we're looking at the weather. And we will change whatever plans that we had made for the reenactment depending on what the weather forecast is. Things I've learned the hard way are that um, if it's an event in the summertime and we're going to be in an exposed area where there's not any shade, we need to bring shade because, um, you know, too much exposure to the sun, sunburn can absolutely uh, negatively affect your ability to reenact for sure. Um, and then another thing that I've learned from experiences is that regardless of what time of year it is, if the temperature is going to drop below 50 degrees Fahrenheit at night, um, I will bring some kind of a heat source, something that can be used to warm up wherever it is that we're going to be sleeping because uh, it's amazing how cold 45 degrees can feel on a night in June or something, you know, where you've got people that are totally unable to sleep, um, guys basically uh, calling it quits and going to sleep in their car because it's just so uncomfortable. Um, it, they're, they're forced outside of their comfort zone to the point where they're not really able to pretend it's World War II anymore. Um, and then the, the other thing that we look at always is rain because um, if an event is going, if it's going to start raining on Friday afternoon, we'll try to get there Friday morning or even Thursday night and set up our tent in advance. And that way, um, at least the inside of the tent maybe has some semblance of being dry. So when you're laying down to go to sleep, you're not laying down on soaked vegetation or you're not laying down in a puddle. Uh, and if it's not possible to do that, we might change the arrival time for the group or, you know, change our plans for where we're going to sleep or something like that. Because um, low temperatures at night together with being wet can absolutely be a uh, of risk a health risk for sure yeah uh when it comes to that uh like just around freezing and it's wet is the coldest and most dangerous uh environment you have it's actually better for it to be like um minus 30 degrees fahrenheit than it is to be like at 32 with rain yeah i believe that um and thinking back on some of the times that we're some of the worst, you know, most uncomfortable times I've had at reenactments were times like that. You know, I've never gotten hypothermia at a reenactment. I've never gotten heat stroke at a reenactment myself. Um, but, and none of, none of my guys have. No one in my unit has had a, a heat or a cold injury. But um, I've, I know that it, it happens to people and I know it can be a disastrous thing, really. Yeah, so. and it happens really quick as well. So it's... Um pretty dangerous uh, when it comes to cold weather which we have quite a lot of um if it uh, we um like a lot of safety uh issues for us is basically issuing out like uh, guidelines or tips or hints to our um, unit members who are attending the um, the event like bring dry socks and bring this bring that make sure you have this and that but for cold weather, we also make sure to always have a car uh, standby somewhere, usually where we have the evacuation point and the water. Uh, so with the key um, 
either inside if possible, but if it's you know somewhere populated, maybe on a certain member, and that anyone when they're cold can go into that car and just start it up and get get warm. That's good. Or if there's a house nearby, that's even better. But like a car at standby is um, is pretty helpful as well. I have tried to have like a sort of a, a culture in my unit where I won't shame somebody for uh, leaving in the night to go and warm up in their car uh, on a cold event. I have I tell everybody, in my opinion, there is no shame in that because the person um, tried. You know, you tried to last the night in a in a cold situation sleeping on the ground in a leaky tent you know maybe there's snow involved maybe there's rain involved um and that's that's all i think is reasonable to ask people to do is to try it but when it's uh one o'clock in the morning and you can't sleep and your feet are screaming in pain and you're shivering uncontrollably and you're wondering you know if you're gonna uh get sick or whatever um there's no, I don't think there's any value to reenacting anymore in that situation. I, I ask people to try to step outside of their comfort zone and try to push themselves, but there is a limit at which point anybody is going to be like, okay, um, this is not only is this not fun anymore, um, this is maybe painful or this is potentially dangerous, and I am going to go warm up, dry off, and you know, try to start again, you know, to, in the morning or whatever. And I just I think that that is something that I think that's reasonable, you know, and that point might be different for for everybody. Um, but I don't I don't expect anybody to, like, get to that point and keep on suffering. You know, I think everyone kind of knows when they've reached their own personal limit. And when people reach that, I encourage them to do what they have to do to to basically to feel better, to be able to do to function as a reenactor. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's it's just a hobby. So. Right. I mean, I think there's like kind of there can be this macho thing where it's like, oh, you you wussed out. You know, you're a wimp. Um, you should have just laid there freezing cold and just uh, in agony all night long just for the to show that you're strong or whatever. And it's like you don't have you don't have to do that. Like, I don't I don't think it's reasonable to expect anybody to do that kind of thing. And yeah. I, I I almost never uh, will do it. And I don't remember exactly when the last time that I basically tapped out and went to my car and the night was but um but i've done it and i'm sure i'll do it again you know because either because i prepared poorly i didn't bring enough bedding or i did i didn't set up the tent right or um i got wet in the setup or temperatures got colder than i expected or whatever you know um there there are there are times that stuff like that happens and suddenly you find yourself in a situation that you're not adequately equipped for or or frankly you know the other aspect of it is is that if it's uh if it's a saturday night and i know that i have a long drive home on sunday morning you know i'm not i'm not really interested in not getting any sleep because i'm super uncomfortable and then doing a uh a drive that might be six hours long while i'm totally exhausted you know that the sleep becomes important for to have a safe trip home and getting getting home is important you know you got to survive the the weekend um so like i say i think um people should 
prioritize their own health and safety to an extent over um, historical realism. You know, it's all like the reality is, is that uh, in World War Two, people froze to death. And that's like not a desirable outcome for a reenactor. Definitely not. Yeah. Very undesirable outcome. When, you and when you're driving home tired and you're you see yourself going towards the ditch, there's no point in thinking like, at least I had a nice time at the event. Or not even a nice time. Like, at least I had a bad time. Or like, <laughs> I, your last thought before you die is like, well... I didn't sleep anything last night. was so cold. <laughs> this was a terrible weekend, but like, at least nobody called me a wimp for going to my car. You know what I mean? Like, that's not valuable. <laughs> you were done way better than me. <laughs> You know, but that's that's really only part of of safety. You know, the other thing is, um, what do you do when you're at the event? You know, besides the weather, and um, there's stuff that I think anybody should do. This is something that I've become kind of really aware of, even when I'm I'm hiking. I watch a lot of uh, YouTube videos about mysterious disappearances, and uh, I really find some of these stories uh, really fascinating. Um, but I definitely wouldn't want me or any of my friends to become the subject of a video like that. So I am really hesitant when we're in areas that are large enough that uh, people could theoretically go get lost, right? Or when we're in places that no, no one there really knows very well. Maybe it's our first time at a new site and we're in the woods. I won't send people off by themselves. I'll try to make sure that no one ever gets out of sight of everybody else, you know, try to stay together as a group or two groups or whatever it is. Um, and just not let anybody get separated because so many terrible, tragic stories start with this moment where people become separated from the group and then, um, you know, they're never found again, or they find their body weeks later or whatever. And I don't, I don't want to be in that situation. I don't want any of my guys to be in that situation. Yeah, no, it's better to avoid losing people entirely. And it can happen, I think, faster than people people realize. Um, you know, you take a wrong turn and then you keep going straight when you should have uh, turned back. And the next thing you know, you know, I, I know I talked about this previously on the podcast, but we did an event in Maine last year. It was the first time we ever did an event in Maine. It's this very northern, it's the most northern state on the east coast of the United States. And... The area where we did this reenactment was just so vast, you know, it was a, a, a wooded mountaintop and, um, you know, it was it was kind of on a road, which was a dirt road at sort of at the end of it. And uh, if you looked at it on Google Maps, right, and zoom out, it's just forest and forest and forest for miles and miles and miles, real big country. And it has bears and and moose and all kinds of wildlife out there and it's absolutely not unimaginable that somebody could go get lost up there and then it becomes a search and rescue operation you know and so to avoid that it was super clear it was made super clear to all participants you need to basically stay close to the to the logging roads and to the trails on the site you know don't like you can be you you can be off the road but not by not by too much, you know, you've got to constantly know where you are in relation to the road so you can find your way back. And of course it worked out fine and, um, you know, every, nobody got lost, but, uh, it's, it's crazy. Sometimes some of the places where you will go as a reenactor are, are just so remote and are not like any place where most people would regularly go in their regular daily lives, you know? 
I don't know. It is a danger. I think we have less isolated places, but I mean, some of our areas, if you like get lost in the wrong direction, you can go on for days. I bet those forests are really beautiful. Sounds great. I mean, not get, <laughs> not the getting lost for days part, but just doing reenactments up there sounds really great. And then, you know, the other big thing here, and I, I know people are probably waiting for us to get around to this, is uh, firearm safety. Just becomes so important to have training in that. And um, most, I, I, I think most, or maybe, maybe half of all of the injuries that I've seen happen at reenactments were related to improper handling of firearms, basically where somebody shoots at someone else from a distance that is unsafe and that results in an injury or um, shooting someone shoots too close to somebody's ear or too close behind somebody and it causes like an injury to their eardrum Um, you know these are these are things that can happen in kind of the heat of the moment because you're running around you're pretending you're in world war ii the adrenaline is high and you're 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 blasting away at people and um you have to just really remain focused on what is and is not safe because people can get really hurt doing this stuff and pe- you could kill somebody um, if you if you shoot them with a blank you know the wrong way from the wrong distance or whatever blanks are obviously safe in comparison to real ammunition right but they are nevertheless dangerous and um, you know it's just to me I'm not I'm not I don't want to use this podcast as like a Okay, here's how you're safe with a gun. I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably very experienced with handling firearms. Um, and I guess I would say the big thing here is that this is something that needs to be taught by reenactment units. Um, where there, there should be training events or some other form of instruction or whether it's just before the event or whatever where the unit commander is making sure, okay, the guys in my group know how to handle guns, know what a safe distance to shoot blanks is, know how dangerous blanks are, you know. And, uh, yeah, I think I really just think it should be like a unit responsibility to teach this incredibly important skill. I agree. Uh, Prior to any tacticals we do, um, like I think blanks say like 20 meters safe the distance. We usually up that to either 25 or 30 meters. And prior to the um, to the event, while we're all gathered there, we will measure up what 30 meters is and like have everybody know that that is 30 meters. That's cool. Because it's longer than you expect. I, I don't want to like delve too, too deep into horror stories, but um, I've seen just some... I haven't seen anybody like lose their eyes or anything like, like that horrific or anything, but people getting, um, you know, powder burns or... Um, get blasted in the face at relatively short distance. And, you know, it can be really uh, frightening. Another aspect of firearm safety is just knowing how to handle the firearm correctly and also um, being aware of potential issues with the firearm that you're using. You know, I know some people um, use like uh, blank fire only machine guns, uh, that have been they're like a parts kit that has been assembled in such a way so that it complies with all of the laws about um, you know it was never a machine gun it could never be used to a machine gun basically it's like a toy no- noisemaker thing that shoots blanks and it's certainly possible for those things to be very safe but I have seen uh, 
weapons like that fail at reenactments. I saw somebody get hurt very badly one time due to a failure of a weapon like that, where the, I guess, the back of the receiver of this thing, the back of the tube basically came apart, you know, and, and pieces got launched into this guy's face. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's many, many layers of firearm safety, many aspects of it, and particularly as it... Um, as it pertains to reenacting, because some of these quote-unquote firearms that we use aren't even really firearms and are just uh, sort of toy noisemakers, and those can come with their own whole host of potential problems. So um, you just have to really know your gear. You know, don't... Um, if, you're, if you have something like that and you're loaning it to somebody, make sure that you have trained them and you have instructed them and made it clear what the risks are and, um, you know, how to, how to be safe about it and... You know, if you if you don't don't just buy something from somebody and then go run off into the woods the next weekend and plan to put two thousand blanks through it. You know, make sure that you know this thing. You know, before you get hurt. That's that's my advice to people, I guess. No, I think that is very important. Thankfully, we don't deal with firearms, uh, tacticals, and blanks that much to uh, have had any like bad injuries or any injuries at all that I can think of right now regarding firearms. The worst I, the worst injury I ever got at a reenactment was I sprained my ankle. And it was like not a big deal. You know, I was running <laughs> from uh, one place to another and it was it was rocky and I twisted my ankle and it really hurt. The next day it hurt. I went to the doctor and they told me that it had been sprained, which is just a soft tissue injury. It was swollen for some weeks or whatever it was tender for a couple of weeks but it healed fine and i think that i'm lucky that that was the only real injury like that that i ever had and you know not to say that a sprained ankle is even a serious injury so that that's uh i feel like i've been pretty lucky over time i can't think of any injuries i've had that's good i think about like sometimes that i've been at events and people had to leave and go to the hospital um a guy sprained his knee one time um that was a very difficult situation it was difficult for him to walk for a little while after that that was you know like like i say just a soft tissue injury but still a painful injury that left him you know kind of bedridden for a little while anyway i saw someone burn their hand one time because they were using a mortar and they didn't uh they didn't get their hand out of the way fast enough i guess and so um the charge detonated in the tube while his hand was still very near the end of the mortar and he had uh, part of burns on his fingers. He had to uh, go to the doctor. He had to leave the event and go to the hospital. Um, and I saw one time somebody was using, uh, it was like a device that fired shotgun blanks that was part of a like cannon simulator and... One of the shotgun blanks uh, was was faulty, I guess, and somehow the primer was shot backwards out of this thing and, and embedded itself in his hand, and he had to go to the hospital and have this little piece of metal removed from his hand. These are things that can happen at, at reenactments. You know, and none of these things were like life-changing or handicapped these people or caused serious problems, but, you know, it's... Uh, Anytime anything like that happened, it, it caused us to have to look carefully at what we were doing and try to find ways to prevent stuff like that from, from ever happening again. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad I haven't experienced like bad injuries like that at uh, any of my events or with my guys. Like, it's only been, I wouldn't call them minor things, but like things that didn't require uh, hospital visits and stuff like that. Yeah, try to try to keep that record going. Um, <laughs> since I started the group that I'm in now, I guess uh, six or seven years ago, we haven't had anybody um, have to be hospitalized or see a doctor. So that's that's a good thing. Our record is pretty good. So far, so good, I guess. Hopefully, we'll stay that way. Hopefully. That's all I've really got about uh, safety. Was there anything else that you wanted to add, Lassa? No. I don't think there's more to add. Just take care and stay safe. And um, there's no shame in, in like leaving, basically. And try to prepare for the worst and hope for the best. That's good advice. Be prepared. Look at look at what the risks are before the event. Try to be prepared for a worst case scenario. Make sure that you've got a culture of safety in your group. Try to train your guys to behave safely. Make sure that if there is some kind of an accident, uh, you have a plan. Yeah. I will say, um, at events here in the United States, there's like certain things that often happen prior to the event. There's an ammunition check where. Um, the event host will go th- ask, you know, they'll have a representative do this or they'll have the unit commanders do it or whatever to look at, at a sample of every man's ammunition just to make sure that everyone has safe blank ammunition. Um, also, there's usually like a sort of a formation at the before a tactical where there will be some notes made about safety. Maybe they'll point out people who are uh, first responders or uh, EMTs, people who have first aid skill they do it for a job um, and maybe people who have first aid materials on them also they'll usually say what the safe word or whatever the um, the ceasefire word is um, a lot of times at events here they use the word corpsman which is some kind of like I think it's the United States Marine Corps uh, medical personnel and, and I don't know how this tradition got started but it is a tradition where uh, a lot of times if someone gets really hurt, you're supposed to yell the word corpsman, and that's the symbol for all of the reenactment events to cease and to get help for the person who needs it. Yeah, I think sushi is cooler. Sushi is definitely cooler. I don't know <laughs> I don't know where corpsman came from, but yeah, sushi is definitely cooler. I guess that's all I've got. Uh, vehicles, quickly on that. I mean, trucks and jeeps and cars and stuff like that. I mean, drive slowly watch where you drive but when it comes to like armored vehicles which have very limited uh, visibility be it an armored car or tank or something um it's important to be very aware of that when you're around it never lay down behind it and stuff like that and of course for the driver to never do like sudden movements forward or backwards yeah i saw a um i saw one time a, a situation where there was an armored car that was stopped in a field and um, some people were taking cover behind it. And suddenly there was like a allied push from the tree line, a bunch of troops with uh, automatic weapons launched out. And the guy who was driving the armored car um, just threw the thing in reverse and, and hit the gas. And fortunately the people who were taking cover behind it were able to get out of the way, but it was like, you know, there was a very unsafe situation for a few moments for those guys. Um, they shouldn't have, they probably shouldn't have been there. I'm not blaming the driver of the armored car, but yeah, I would never try to take cover behind a vehicle knowing that the driver of the vehicle might not see me, might not know that I'm there and could basically, uh, suddenly back up at any time. That is very dangerous. 
I mean, people died that way in World War II, for sure. People still die that way in military trainings today. So that is a very, very important thing to be aware of. Like, both as a driver and as a, uh, a person around the vehicle to, like, yeah, just to be careful. Never do any sudden moves and never um, just lay down behind it, behind the vehicle. All right, I think that's about it for safety. Um, so everybody out there, I hope that you stay safe. Uh, if there's anything that we forgot to include, uh, shoot me a message and uh, maybe we can do a follow-up on it or whatever. And uh, to everybody out there and to you as well, Lassa, I will see you in the field. I'll see you in the field. Don't forget to use our 7% discount code off of uh, Fedakopf at german-worldwar2.com. And if you buy something there and you go to the checkout and you use the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, you will get a very nice discount. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast.